Welcome to Callback Podcast number 17. Well, it had to happen sooner or later, and we hated that it was on this show, but we had to do a podcast without Aaron Glass. Aaron was traveling, he was out on the road, and um, we had our guest, Rich Hall, was in town to shoot a television show, and he was gracious enough to uh, uh, let us come by his hotel room and record literally seconds before he had to hit the road and head back to London, where he lives. He splits his time between London and Montana, and uh, to those who don't know, Rich Hall uh, one of my favorite stand-up comics of all time. He, uh, besides doing stand-up comedy, he was famous for inventing sniglets, which are words that should be in a dictionary but aren't. He had a, a whole bunch of books that were hugely popular. Also, he was uh, a writer on, uh, I think he won an Emmy for writing for Letterman, and he used to be on Saturday Night Live. He now lives in London, where he's on every television show imaginable, and um, he was he was just a blast catching up with him. I actually learned a lot about Rich. I've known him for years, traveled with him and toured with him, and I learned a lot about him that I never knew, which was amazing. So I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks to everyone out there who's listening. Uh, As always, you can catch us on callbackpodcast.com. You can reach out. You can send us an email. We're callbackpodcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, um, uh, at callbackpodcast. And we really love you to, if you like the show, we'd really love you to subscribe for free. Tell your friends. You can subscribe for free on iTunes. That really helps us out. Also, like us on our Facebook page, if you could. Call that podcast as a Facebook page. And Eric Streeper, you've been uh, so great to us. Thanks for helping us out on the website, as always, uh, uploading, doing everything you can to uh, keep this thing looking nice and, uh, and professional, making us look uh, like we know what we're doing. Anyway, with that out of the way, folks, uh, podcast number 17 with my buddy, Rich Hall. We're here with our guest, uh, Rich Hall, famous comedian, uh, God willing. And uh, we're in the W Hotel. His daughter is joining him next to, uh, sitting next to her. Hi, Dixie. Um, you're the first. You're, the, you're our first female guest ever on the Callback <laughs> Podcast. I just want you to know. Um, so, uh, Rich, you were talking about Montana versus the world. Uh, Rich and I have known each other for many years. Uh, and what was it? Three years ago we started this. No, it's been about six now. Has it been six? Six years. So six years. The annual Montana versus the World softball game, which previously has always taken place uh, on a field below my uh, house on a very uneven field with a lot of obstructions like badger holes and prairie dog tunnels and uh, tumbleweeds. Uh, this year we moved it to a, a baseball complex in Livingston, Montana, and uh, it's it's all the people in my town who are Montana born and bred versus people who have moved in from somewhere else, and uh, although I represented the Montana team even though I haven't lived there my whole life. And uh, we were very successful this year. Very exciting game. Nine innings. Walk-off home run. Uh, bottom of the ninth. Uh, walk-off home run by you? No, by a fellow named Cleo Toll. Cleo Toll? Remember that name, yeah. Keep that, <laughs> keep that name in mind because you're going to be hearing about him in the, in the, the annals of softball. Where does Cleo hail, hail from? He's from Livingston, Montana. So, Montana versus the world, uh, we cut this thing out of a field. We actually went out and cut an entire baseball field. There was actually nothing there before we went out there with your farm equipment. Yeah. made this baseball field, and every year all these people come out and, uh, 
And this year you moved it to the local... Yeah, this year we decided to play on a, uh, a flat surface, regular uh, American Legion size field. Because of the injuries, last year a woman needed rhinoplasty. Oh my! God. Uh, that's not a joke. I hear this. That's, I yeah, broken nose. Oh, okay. took one. Took one, hit a, hit a clump of uh, hit a clump of um, feldspar in the middle of the field. There's also a lot of rocks and minerals in the baseball field in the original field, and uh, bounced off some feldspar. Uh, broken what's nose. What's feldspar? You it's, have it's a, a rock. Uh, yeah, it's a oh, uh, it's a mineral. It's a mineral. It's a rock. And she broke a nose. A year before that, a couple years before that, fell and needed stitches. Took one in the eyebrow. So it's, um, you know, it's a rough and tumble game. It's not for everyone. Granted, the woman who broke her nose was from Belgium, had never seen a softball before. And oh. the, uh, the, the appointed captain of the team she was on decided to stick her at shortstop. So uh, about the first ball hit went right in, right into her beak, <laughs> right into the snot locker. Took it yeah, out. Yeah, it's like it, I got a phone call. It was like the, the the game lasted what two minutes or something like that. Well, no, there was an injury within two minutes, but there were two surgeons who happened to be playing on the field, so one of them took her off and you know, so put her nose back together, and uh, we replaced her at shortstop. So this this leads me to. Uh, a question I, I don't actually know the answer to. I don't. I don't know if I've ever asked you this. You live in Montana, yeah, and uh, you you basically could have lived anywhere in the world, and you chose Montana and London. Why did you choose Livingston, Montana? What, what was it about Livingston that really? Because I've been to visit. It's an amazing town. Yeah, I love the people there. The locals are just kind of this crazy group of people that you, you eccentric and all sorts of things. But. Um, I, I would never have found that place had it not been for you, you know. So, right. how did you find the place? Um, I was a big fan of Tom McGuane, the writer Tom McGuane, and a lot of his novels took place there. And he's a very descriptive writer. River and runs through it. Is that right? Is no, that right? he did not write oh, that. That was written sure. by Norman McLean. Oh, Tom McGuane wrote uh, Ninety Two in the Shade. He wrote um, Panama. He wrote uh, a couple of movie scripts. Uh, he wrote the last screenplay. He wrote the screenplay for Tom Horn, which was one of Steve McQueen's last films. He uh, wrote the script for a film called uh, Cold Feet with Tom Waits and Keith Carradine. But he's written a lot of novels, and uh, I just wanted to see what it was about. I wanted to see there was a, there was before I moved there back in the in the seventies. There were a lot of uh, writers slash. Uh, Acid head slash trout fisherman who moved there and sort of formed this sort of renegade community of of writers, and uh, some of them survived, some of them didn't. And uh, did that was this a place that you instantly put down roots at? Were you always going back and forth? I didn't have any roots. I I drove out there. I was doing a gig in Billings, and I decided to I finished that up and decided to drive over to uh, Livingston and have a look, and uh, decided. I wanted to live there. That's cool. Now you, you have um, a, to- a house in town, um, and uh, you've. Uh, I have a dilapidated ranch, but you that have, I yeah, spend so most of my time had, working on. You've had a place there for how long now? It's got to be close to twenty years, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you used to have horses at one point. Remember I had some horses. Uh, lost one of them. Oh really? Well, that's sad. No, no. I, just they didn't die. I, I lost, lost one of the horses. <laughs> I think he went back to being 
he went back to his Mustang roots. He just wandered off one day. So, I mean, is this something where you, you, you feel like you got to get back to Montana every Because I know you go there and spend time with your family there every year. But you live in London, which is where you perform quite often and travel the world doing um, uh, comedy, you know, uh, working at festivals and sometimes doing your own shows. I mean, do you feel like you, you need to get back to Montana to come put your head straight? Or is, that, is, this, is this something where... You know, you're you're happy living on the road, or what? Where do you find happiness on there? Like, I li- I like uh, Montana. Yeah, I yeah. like being there. I think it's. I'm managing to spend an extended amount of time there, possibly until Christmas now. So, uh, well, that's cool. It's great. It's great. Yeah. Now, how do you like London, though? Uh it's all right. Now you went out to London. Probably close to twenty years as well, right? Or how long ago was uh, Back in the mid nineties, I started. No. For the people who don't know, Rich, uh, I'm sure they all know who you are. You uh, you grew to fame uh, doing stand-up comedy. You were one of the, the regular guests on Tonight Show. Back when it meant something where a guy would do the Tonight Show and the next day he couldn't walk down the street without being recognized. That's not true. I, I did the Tonight Show and I could walk down the street the next day and and, and still not get recognized. Um, I did the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson once and then I went out to Malibu to go running along the beach the next uh, Saturday morning, the next day. And uh, he called me over to the couch. We'd had nice exchange, you know. Come back anytime, Rich. Always a pleasure. You're one of my favorite comedians. All the accolades you could get from Johnny Carson. The next day, I'm running along the beach. He comes walking up the beach the other way with his wife. And uh, I can't visually recreate uh, on a a podcast (laughs) what the look he gave me. But it was basically nothing. (laughs) <laughs> a slight shift of, so you, of eyeballs and so he just kind of nodded and didn't, didn't break stride you didn't even get recognized by Johnny Carson after you did the he did recognize show. me oh. no he recognized me but he just gave me not even a nod just just enough to know that he you know don't talk to don't that he registered me coming the other way How this is less than this is about 14 hours after oh come back anytime you're one of our favorite comedians <laughs> he's like oh shit there he is yeah um did you? Uh, how many times did you do th- the Tonight Show? I don't know. I uh, probably a dozen. So a dozen. So yeah. a lot. So back then, you, you were a stand-up comic. I know you got your roots. You we once had a conversation. You said that uh, Harry Anderson was an early. Uh, he, he. I saw Harry Anderson when he was a street performer, and I wanted to be a street performer after seeing Harry Anderson. That was my only aspiration was to to be as good a street performer as Harry Anderson. What kind of street performances was he doing? Stand-up? He was doing uh, insult magic, where he would take, you know, he'd shake hands with someone, he'd get a crowd together, shake hands with him, then he'd have the guy's watch, and then he would smash the watch, so everyone's waiting for him to give it, you know, replace it. Everyone knew that he'd, he'd uh, you know, palm the watch and put, and then would give it back to him later, but he actually really would smash someone's watch. It <laughs> <laughs> was great. <laughs> And uh, he would find someone with a really cheap watch that he knew he could give him money later. And wait, he would just wait, take wait. their Timex, like a cheap Timex, and uh, so he would just smash this? it. And then, this was in uh, uh, Seattle. Oh, okay. And you, what, were you, what were you doing in Seattle? I was supposed to be going to school. But you were just monitoring some school, right? You didn't even like register, right? Is that no, I was registered. It's just that I ended up getting a job on the newspaper at the school, and I spent all my time working on the newspaper. I never went to class. 
But wasn't there a school where like you just didn't go and you just kind of were just hanging out? Like, oh yeah, that was in Missouri. Yeah, I <laughs> you just, just started to, going to classes, but you didn't yeah, register. I, did, I never registered or anything. That's just, great. And then they gave me a dorm room. They didn't <laughs> even know I wasn't registered there. It's called Lindenwood College. Everyone so, thought I was registered. So you you see Harry Anderson. He's a young inspiration. You you start doing street performing right away. How does somebody just start doing street? I, I didn't start right away, but. Um, uh, I started going into coffee shops and these sort of open mic places. There weren't really any comedy clubs, but you could just, there were like open mic nights where some guy would get up and do a bad Cat Stevens rendition, you know, of a bad Cat Stevens song or something. A lot of kids who thought they were the new Neil Young. And I'd just get up and tell stories, and they were kind of funny. Sometimes they were just columns. I was writing a column for a newspaper, and sometimes I would just go and kind of recite my column that I'd just written for for the paper that hadn't been published yet and I just tried out in front of people. You'd and read a column to people? Kind of, yeah. More or less paraphrase, but yeah. So I didn't even think about I didn't think I was really doing stand up comedy. Uh it was just so at what, point what I did could you do. Transition to doing well that? then I decided I'd get crowds together and pass a bucket around so I didn't have any talent or skills. I couldn't juggle or do magic or sing or play guitar or ride a unicycle. But I wanted to get a crowd together and have them give me money for a performance. <laughs> so I kind of had a movie camera with nothing in it. There's no film in it. It didn't even work. And a bunch of mimeographed scripts that I'd written. And I'd just get a crowd together and say I needed to finish some scenes for a homemade movie. I needed crowd scenes. <laughs> And then I'd pick some people out of the crowd and say, you're not bad. Here, read this part for me. And I had a, a megaphone that was really loud and annoying. And I'd be talking to people as close as you are to me with a megaphone, like just right in their face, you know. And I'd yell cut and action and just kind of tell them how crap they were. And it was just kind of funny. It was funny because I was just, you know, ripping on people. And... uh kind of relying on them to, to screw up so it'd be funny and it generally was you know getting nervous people to try and act all right yeah I mean and then yelling at them with a megaphone was really <laughs> uncomfortable and invariably something funny would happen and then I then I'd do some scenes myself you know I'd make someone else hold the camera and then I would act and there would kind of be funny scenes and it just kind of morphed into eventually mutated into what you would call comedy street performing and started going around to colleges, getting students together and between classes. Still and not being there officially, just showing up like to do Yeah, yeah, I would just show up and a little homemade sandwich board. And <laughs> and eventually I was living the, 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 the Harry Anderson lifestyle. Although I remember he had a, a, a homemade camper on the back of his pickup truck with shingles on it, with cedar shake shingles. It was really cool. He had a really cool little cabin on the back of his truck that he lived in. And he had hair down to his waist. And that would have been fine for you to... to I was very happy. I did that for about four years. And started getting hired by a lot of these schools to come back and and play their cafeteria, you know. And uh, kind of came down the Pacific coast and across Arizona chasing the sun until it got, you know, until it got cool, until it got warmer. And then I'd start going up through... The Midwest. I was just pay, playing a lot of colleges, and I got—I think I did that off and on for about two or three years. And I ended up in um, 
Philadelphia. And uh, the first comedy club I really saw where I had an opportunity to go on. Do you remember the name of it? Grandma Minis. Grandma Minis? In Philadelphia. Well, they yeah. have like an open mic or something like that? Yeah, they had a, it was a, they were bringing comics down from New York and, and L.A., you know, and uh, uh, they had their open mic night. And I met uh, Provenza, Paul Provenza, of all people, saw me street performing at, at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. And uh, he was going to school there. Bob Saget was going to school at uh, Temple, I think. Okay. And uh, they were uh, they were just starting out, and they kind of encouraged me to go into these clubs and try my stuff out. So you would go up at like this place in Philadelphia, but then you would have to find like a circuit, like another place somewhere else. You're like, oh, that that worked all right. I'll try it. Well, I kind of. Uh, you I, like, got I got some gigs. I got some. I got some gigs at um, Grandma Minnie's. You know, they didn't take me long to. To get some opening spots, opening for the, the big names, like uh, the unknown comic and Glenn Super, <laughs> Bob Shaw, Richard Belzer, and um, that was that was just. I think when you start out, you just kind of every breakthrough is it, that's a new plateau, and yeah. and you you're quite happy to have reached that. Like this idea that people. Uh, think oh I'm going to be the greatest comedian ever but I, I'm going to start tomorrow I, I, we didn't really think like that we just thought what's the next level we can get to and it was at a time when comedy was just stand up was the clubs were just starting to open I think Philadelphia is one of the first places besides LA or New York to you know to what open up a full time comedy club otherwise it would be like a one nighter here or there at a bar or like a well the one nighters were like folk clubs like the main the main point and um, uh, a place called the Electric Factory, you know, the, where you might want to open up for bands as well. It could be awful. I opened up for Gil Scott Heron, and I was sure they were going to kill me. I'm sure <laughs> I was going to get shot before the show was over. So, Awkward silence. So, you, no, so uh, but at what point did you... Uh, get to the point where you start because I know you opened for a bunch of bands like uh, there was that one bit that you were telling me about I want to hear about the Dow bit where uh, oh yeah <laughs> it was like yeah. a Springsteen thing what was it oh I used to come out and do a kind of a Thunder Road kind of story about being on a motorcycle and I sort of straddle a, a tall stool and use it as a motorcycle and eventually stick this little ratty looking plastic doll naked plastic doll behind me and she'd kind of I'd kind of work its arms around my waist so it was holding on and uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be an audience participation thing it generally worked where I'd wheel around a curve too fast and it would go flying off into the audience and then there was an obvious cue at some point for someone in the audience to throw it back and it, almost any idiot could figure out I wanted it thrown back but I was opening for Levon Helm and the RCO All-Stars. Levon Helm from the band had his own sort of all-star band, and it was out on a place called My Father's Place on Long Island. And uh, I was supposed to do 20 minutes. And it was St. Patrick's Day, and they were serving green beer in pitchers. <laughs> and uh, they were just vicious. It was just the most vicious, evil crowd. They were pouring beer into my loafers from the stage. <laughs> I was about four feet up so someone could just stand at the foot of the stage and reach my shoe and just pour beer into it while I was trying to tell jokes and so then I tried to 
tried to end up with this routine with the doll, and I threw out in the audience, and it just started coming back in sections. Like, a leg came back, <laughs> and then an arm, and then the head. Was it like you had a guy that was, like, you're like, I'm going to throw it to my friend, and he's like, I'm going to catch the doll and throw it. No, I never, I always just figured it, oh. it's going to come back. It generally did. And this time it just came back uh, severed. And uh, <laughs> I left after about 17 minutes, and a guy named Epi Epstein was the owner. And he was upstairs counting his money with a gun on the desk. It was straight out of, straight out of some old, you know, film about nightclub owner. This guy's got a pistol on the desk. He's counting his money, and uh, and I was supposed to get, I think, fifty dollars. And I walked in. He went, "You only did seventeen minutes. I'm giving you thirty-five. And uh, I was so angry at the crowd. And, and um, Lee Kernis was with me. I mean, Lee Kernis, who looks after quite a lot of comedians now he was sort of my manager then and he was he was saying let's not mess with this guy let's just go let's just let's just toss this one up as a loss you know and I went nope I'm getting my money I want my money fifty dollars because I endured you know death out there and and the guy says I'm giving you 35 and I said you're giving me 50 are you gonna shoot me over fifteen dollars and then he just kind of laughed and gave me $50. And he said, listen, I want to have you back. <laughs> and uh, I said, I'm never coming back here. Are you crazy? And he went, no, I like you. And uh, all right. He says, you can, open for, uh, you can open for Jesse Winchester in two weeks. And I knew that Jesse Winchester was a real folky act. Get college girl following and stuff. Be easy. I went, all right. Okay, I'll, I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks. It's so awful. At, at what point do you go from that? Because now, I mean, you're actually doing stadiums at that point. You're doing larger shows. I was not doing stadiums. Well, what? I mean, what? Well, you opening for these bands? What they like? That's a that's a larger group than you would get doing stand up when you first start out. When I was doing uh, a street performance at the University of Maryland, and uh, uh, I think I, it was my third or fourth time there, and they uh, they asked me if I wanted to open for the Mister Bill show. And, uh, Mr. Bill show? Mr. Bill is this bad clay... From Saturday Night Live. Claymation thing from Saturday Night Live, yeah. They decided to take him on tour and I could open. And uh, it was great. I, I, like, rocked the place. And Mr. Bill came out and people were heckling... People started heckling Mr. Bill. They, the show was so bad. Well, was it just like, the, hello, Mr. Handel? It was just... Stuff? The guys who put it together, I forget their names now, but they just showed little films of him. So it was this giant, it was Cole Fieldhouse. It was a big, it's where they held basketball games at Maryland, and uh, they would just put this, they had this tiny projector and no one could see it. Oh, no. And then occasionally the real Mr. Bill would come out behind like a desk, and people, you know, even they had binoculars, he was only that big. He was like six inches high. <laughs> and... Uh, about five minutes in, they just started throwing stuff at it, and uh, so I came off looking really good. And then they said, "Oh, we want you back. We want you back. You want to open for the Talking Heads next month?" <laughs> and I went, "Yeah, sure." And I was chuffed to open for the Talking Heads, and it was a total disaster. Why they, is that? Uh, it's not. That was not a comedy crowd. Oh. So that was, was was opening for Mr. Bill your foot in the door to get into Saturday Night Live? No, no, no. Nah, that would come many years later. Yeah, so let's fa- let's fast forward. So, when did you get your first like big break doing stand up comedy? Like, what is what do you consider your big break? 
this is you're, you're now street performing you're now performing for some bands here and there but like do you consider your big break getting a television gig or like start headlining what is what was this my big break in stand up comedy is the way I see it looking back my big break was when I was doing I was in at the I was at the improv in uh, in New York and um got hired to write for the Letterman show so effectively my big break was stopping stand-up comedy <laughs> <laughs> and, and becoming a writer on the Letterman show and that, and when I look back that was like a big break was it, and I loved doing stand-up and I but I thought oh I guess yeah, I guess I better go write on this show that's like a big deal to write for Letterman and uh, I kind of quit doing stand-up were you a regular at the clubs at that point you were yeah 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 I was Mostly at the Improv in New York. Is that the kind of thing where you could walk in and you could get a set, or you knew? No, no, you had to. You knew you had. You, you kind of had to be introduced by um, another comedian. I mean, well, the word gets around, you know. It's still like that now. It's like if 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 you're funny, people find out. People find out in the club owners. They want to, they want to sniff it out. And I started at the comic strip actually, uh, on the east side, and. um, but by the time I got over to the improv and just started hanging around, you know, I'd go over with some other comedians. They'd say, oh, you got to get put Rich Hall on. He's funny. So it didn't really seem like I didn't really have to audition or anything. Uh, my, my name had spread uh, at least 30 blocks by that time. Now, how about your act? Were you, what was your act like back then? I know you, you, there was a time where you used a lot of, like... Uh Use a lot more props, and I, I use a lot of props, and and a lot of nights at the improv. Uh, the night I, that Letterman was in the audience and they hired me for a show, I I just it wasn't a big crowd, and some nights I just come in as a um, I didn't really have I wouldn't uh, be introduced. I bang on the side. There was a door on stage that led out to a side street, and uh, you could walk around and bang on the door and have the MC open it, which happened quite often, and it'd just be a tramp, you know. But like. We had it set up that I would. I was gonna. I played this pizza, this Vietnam vet pizza delivery man who was a little bit wrapped too tight, and I would go out and buy a pizza. And then, <laughs> when I was supposed to be doing my spot, I would do it as a guy banging on the door, and uh, you know, uh, and come in with his pizza, <laughs> and try to find out who ordered it. Obviously, no one had ordered it, <laughs> and I wouldn't leave until someone paid for the pizza <laughs> I would just like you know I didn't fight I didn't you know I didn't fight in Vietnam I didn't fight in Vietnam because someone can stiff me on a pizza someone's gonna buy this pizza you know were you in Nam? you weren't in Nam, were you okay no so you don't know do you you don't know man you don't know you don't even know about the right the reason you could even eat this pizza is because of me and uh, I found myself yelling at Letterman I didn't even know he was in the audience they were looking for writers and I was yelling right at Letterman I remember thinking holy shit I'm I'm playing this character and I can't come out of character but I'm yelling at David Letterman <laughs> demand that he pay for a pizza somebody somebody at his table paid for it <laughs> and um, and then it was like a whirl, this whirlwind thing where I didn't even have a manager or an agent really uh, and one of during that tirade while I was yelling at Letterman one of the per, somebody like the producer someone had gotten up and went out and was asking Bud Friedman the, the club owner who represented me and then there was a woman named Lucy Aceto from William Morris who was also there 
at the table or at another table or something and I, I actually got pulled in two different directions like this is about five minutes within coming off stage between the club owner saying I want to represent you and this woman named Lucy Aceto and this woman named Lucy Aceto pulling me the other way saying I want you to come with the William Morris agents, agency and I'm like what the hell's going on <laughs> and uh, and neither of them actually told me that they just asked if they could talk to you about writing on the show it was just like one minute I'm and I'm still dressed in, in these like army fatigues you know <laughs> and uh, holding a pizza empty pizza box or something and they're pulling me both directions and uh uh, so once they saw that the Ludman people had interest, they wanted to, to... Yeah, suddenly they were all... I mean, you know, every cliche you ever heard about show business, that was it in a second. They just swarmed around me. This is a club owner, Bud. Who'd, who'd I known that time for, you know, a good year or two? Mr. You know, Hall. Yeah. Suddenly wanted to represent me. <laughs> and uh, uh, then uh, the, the, produ- the actual head writer for the Letterman show, her name was Meryl, she came over and said, do you want to come in and talk? To us to, yeah, said, yeah. I'll come in and talk to you, and I didn't really sign with anyone. They just kind of hired me. When after I went over and talked to them, and then I pretty much stopped doing stand up. <laughs> How long did you write for Letterman? Uh, I wrote for about eight months, and uh, got an Emmy. Yeah, and then went back and wrote for about three years. Was it? Or you, what, what do you mean? Eight months was the rest of that season, and then you went back. Yeah, I went back for the nighttime show. Oh, for the night? Oh, that's right, because you started the daytime this was, show. This is when he had a daytime show. I like the daytime oh. show. It was funny. Yeah. And then, uh, and then... Three so days. then, um, after, uh, yeah, after that show got canceled, uh, the morning show, Letterman asked me if I wanted to come out to L.A. and, and uh, be a guest on the Tonight Show when he was a guest host. That was my first time to L.A. And uh, so it was pretty easy to uh, go on The Tonight Show. There wasn't that trauma of having to go on with Carson your first time. All right. I kind of eased into it. I was lucky. It was funny because you were talking about your Letterman days. I remember we had a conversation once when we were doing the road where you were telling me how um, you were paying like just the bare minimum for some college loan or something. Oh, I had a college loan from, from UW. <laughs> and you finally... <sighs> you know, like $30,000, $40,000. They would just send me money and I wouldn't even enroll in class. I'd just spend the money. <laughs> and you're supposed to pay it back and I was paying back about $30 a month and some months I didn't you know I didn't pay it I didn't have it and then I all of a sudden I, or I didn't want to pay it and then after you know after about six months of writing on the for Letterman I was, they were paying me pretty good money at the time and so uh, I think I owed them like 15 grand I just called up this woman named Georgia Wooten that was her name. I'll never forget because she'd call me every month. Hi, Rich. You got any money this month? I don't know, Georgia. I'm, I'm trying. And then I sent her a check for, like, the, the balance. <laughs> and she just called me. That's real funny. That's <laughs> real funny. Did you really think I was going to go down to the bank and deposit this? And I'm like, oh, no, it's good. It's good. It's good. I'm, I'm working on a TV show. And she went, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> went, no, no, it's it's this is a Letterman show. It's on in the morning. You can see my name on the credits. And then she calls me back the next day and went, oh, all right, I'm going to the bank. That's awesome. Yeah. Turns so, out I didn't need to pay off that debt. Turns out you don't have to pay these things off after all. 
It was a gov- it was a government insured loan where if you can't pay it back, then we'll pay it for you. Who's gonna Who's gonna turn that down? So, uh, but I just got tired of the phone calls. The phone calls every month, and I think I was worried about my credit rating or something. So, so I paid it off. Three years into Letterman, now are you thinking? Because when did not necessarily the news start then? Uh, that started in about '83, I guess. Were you doing both at the same time? Yeah, yeah. How did they let you do that at Letterman? They just let me off. I went off. You know, I said I want to go off and make a pilot for not necessarily the news, and then I stayed out here for about three months. Now, what is that? Not necessarily the news. Yeah. It was a show made for HBO that came on. They made it. It was a monthly show of news and political comedy where one of the gimmicks, so-called gimmicks to the show was... uh, It was monthly? Yeah, they only made it once a month. It aired like every three nights or so, but it was a monthly show. And they used to dub a lot of uh, news footage. They would just take like clips and and play with the whole form. The whole idea was that it was a news program. You know, imagine like was it just like an early version of the Daily Show? That kind, more of, an that early kind of concept. Of the weekend update. Yeah, it was a bit like it was based on a British show called Not, not the News, not the Nine O'clock News. Okay. And um, that's basically they kind of uh, they played. You know, actually, wait. Uh, I said an early version of Weekend Update, but didn't Weekend Update already existed? Yeah, Weekend Update already basically existed. A, a half an hour. It was kind of that was the week that was kind of uh, a lot of clips, things like that, you know, overdubs. Like they'd be like they'd show the Pope and, and the Pope would be doing. Um, we've got a maid situation here at the W Hotel. No, go away! <laughs> all right, um, and uh, she's gonna walk in anyway. We all know it, right? Um, but uh, they would like the Pope would be like. Um, you know, like, as you'd be overdubbed, as you'd be, like, touching everybody, you know, on the head and being, like, you know, duck, duck, goose, you know, <laughs> you know whatever. They, they just had a whole bunch of funny things. And that's obviously where you uh, created Sniglets. Right. Which was uh, um, huge for you. At one point, Sniglets uh, are words that should be in a dictionary, but uh, aren't. Like, uh, a couple of my favorites, the dur-dur, which is the last piece of... Toilet paper, because afterwards you take the roll and you go. Dur, 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 dur. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hilarious. Well, somebody, I actually, our webmaster found out we were interviewing you today, and he wrote. Um, he goes, "What do you? Who are you interviewing?" I said, "Rich Hall." And then he wrote, um, "Let's see here, uh, Caltitude, <laughs> or no, uh, yeah, Caltitude, the height of a cat's rear end when it rises as you pet it." Right there, you go. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's timeless. <laughs> but so you did these, you did these uh, um, uh, sniglets, and did they start off as a? Uh, they were just like a couple minute bit on the show, right? Um, it started out as a sketch. I wrote this sketch about a guy who's called in a guy working for the like Merriam-Webster mm-hmm. or Oxford English Dictionary or something, and uh, Funk and Wagnalls one of those funny dictionary references and he's called into the editor's office and the editor says uh, you know I have some questions about some of these entries in our our annual our new edition what does this mean and go, oh the dirter that's where and and uh, the producers uh, kind of looked at it and went um, 
it's really, really like the idea, but why don't you just come out and do the words yourself instead of making it a sketch? You know, just come out and say, these are words I've made up, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> so it was directly to camera. Uh, but sometimes we would uh, illustrate them. The, the other cast members would go out and kind of film a little visual illustration of the word. Yeah, like there was one where the dollar bill went into the... Um into the, the conveyor belt at a grocery store? Yeah, yeah. Or the Ignis second back when doors didn't lock automatically, or would lock automatically? No, that's when you lock your uh, when you keys lock your, inside yeah, the car. You lock your key. The Ignis second is the moment you realize you've locked your keys in the car when you're shutting the door. <laughs> but you can't stop. So late. you also wrote a book about it, which I actually have in my parents' house. He's yeah. written a lot of books about it. How, how did the books do? The books uh, did really well. There's... Uh, there's uh, something that Rich has on his wall in Montana. It's a plaque or something somebody's made for you. Yeah. And it's a cutout of the top ten New York Times bestseller list. And at one point, you had three Sniglet books on the uh, nonfiction top ten. Nonfiction. is actually, it wasn't even nonfiction. It was miscellaneous self-help and how to do. <laughs> is that really what the... I think, I think that's what... Oh, okay. And it never... And uh, in that particular... Week, none of them were number one. The road less traveled was number one. I think there's like two, five, and nine or something. <laughs> but it was great. There were three of us. <laughs> like that must have been just the odd thing. The thing I learned it was kind of a naive experience. Um, is that when you write on a show, you sign a contract that they get to keep. Um, certain intellectual property. Right. Like, if you're smart, you will keep any characters that you brought into the show. They'll try to argue that any characters created on the show, then they have a part of them. And uh, it wasn't really clarified what Sniglets were. So, legally, they, uh, the producers of, of Not Necessarily the News, owned kind of half the concept. That's how it worked out. Moffat Lee, right? Moffat Lee Productions, yeah. So, everything was split with them, the profits from the You made them books. a lot of money. I made them a lot of money. At the time, they made me money. Uh, but there were two of them and one of me, so we meet on things, and they were... It then expanded to places I, I personally wouldn't have let it go, like board games and, oh. and, to and toilet paper and... They were just—they just merched the hell out of it, and uh, I get outvoted two to one every time. <laughs> I go, "What are they making a board game?" I go, "No, let's just not." Because also, what was happening was I was trying to do stand-up, and the the idea of Sniglets didn't really work as stand-up. Used to say Sniglets were uh, what Lola was to the Kinks. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> a goof that just caught on. Yeah. It's not the song they're proudest of. What? Where did the actual word Sniglet come from? Was that you? Or? Yeah, I just made it up. Okay. Yeah. There's no Sniglet for Sniglet, definitely? No, but that's probably the word of all the words. That's the one word that probably is part of the language now. <laughs> that's pretty funny. It's the word itself. So, um, it reached a point where, you know, I was I was playing lots of clubs, but at some point invariably people would want to they would just yell Sniglets that's what people do in the crowd when they 
they might as you know if they're going to if it's Jeff Fox where they're going to redneck jokes and to me it was they it was something seen on TV that had been illustrated uh, by cast members like you could make it work really well on TV but for me to stand up on stage and just do this litany of words and then you know what they mean was kind of you know it was kind of a anticlimactic. It wasn't as good as my other stand-up. But, of course, there's, you know, the Snicklets guy. He said, oh, let's go see the Snicklets guy. So I was kind of forced to put in... I was kind of had to do them. And I could never really make them the strongest part of my show. I had much other stuff that worked better, but invariably I had to do it. And, uh, it, you know, it's just one of those things I learned early that you got to be careful of being pigeonholed, you know. Right. And quite often, and, and it's a stupid word. The more you say it, the more. And, you know, so you walk down the street, hey, Sniglets. <laughs> and it wasn't like, hey, Rich Hall, or, or you know. It must be, like, you know. It's like Larry the Cable. You must get sick of walking down the street going, hey, Cable Guy. You know, it's a character. I'm not really a Cable Guy. <laughs> but to me, it was like, and if you didn't know what Sniglets were, it sounded like someone was calling them cat, you know. <laughs> Sniglets! And a lot of people would look around and go, cat run away around here or something? <laughs> and then I'd wave. My, you know, uh, every time I've been uh, out with you somewhere, like doing stand-up, somebody comes up to you and recognizes you, and my favorite thing is when they say, hey, aren't you Rich Hall? And you're like, no. And they're like, really? You look just like, there's this comedian named Rich Hall. They start <laughs> explaining who you are. Oh yeah, to myself. <laughs> You look just like him. But quite often I get, uh, hey, Joe Piscopo. <laughs> and one time, uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas, uh, I got mistaken for, um, uh, I, oh, God. Catherine Zeta Jones? No, a football player. <laughs> like a big, Tackle. I can't remember. Uh, I can't, huh? I can't for the life of me remember the name now. It'll come to me in a minute. <laughs> but it was just these people wouldn't let up. Somehow, they uh, had confused me with a football player. The uh, I love the one time. I'll, we think, I'll think of it a minute. We can we can edit that part yeah, out. Yeah, I was. Uh, we don't edit. Uh, I went to the, we went to a Cub game. We don't edit. Uh, uh, we don't edit. Uh, I went to we went to a Cub game. <laughs> I can't think. Of, I got to think of this guy's name now. Okay, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, so we went to a Cub game, and uh, I was the house MC at the funny firm. So different comics there every week. Oh, this is gonna be a story about you now. Yeah, this is gonna be a little bit about. <laughs> I'll take a drink of water while you tell a story. <laughs> Something that once happened to you. Um, so it was great because Rich had been like four people had come up and been like, "Hey, Rich Hall, Rich Hall." He's like, "Yeah, yeah." And he turns to me and he goes, "If one more person comes up to me and just and, and just goes, it's just driving me crazy." And this guy comes up and you can see he's already like, "Oh, yeah." And he goes, "Hey, you're the comedian." He's like, "Yeah, yeah." Yeah, John, right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah. He goes, who's at the club this week? And I go, oh, Rich Hall. And he looks at Rich, and he's, who else is there? <laughs> it, was just like, it was almost as if I set it up. It was perfect. <laughs> when I first met Rich, he was like that. I, I met you at the Improv, and I walked home, like, oh, my God, I went to go see a show. I brought a whole bunch of people with, like, maybe ten people. We all drove out there. You know, I got them all. To, a lot of those guys lived in the suburbs. I was living in the city, and they all came and met me. We all went to the show. We made a big night of it. And there's my... 
one of my favorite comics of all time. Rich Hall, I grew up watching this guy. This is great. I'm going to go say hi. And I walk over and he just looks at me and he goes, what? <laughs> I go, uh, I just want to say I really enjoyed your show. He's like, yeah. Uh, and he pulls out a pen like he's going to sign said I'm going to sign my I, I had a card myself that's a comedian on it one of those cards when you start out and he signed it and gave it back to me <laughs> <laughs> and I was like thanks 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 a lot <laughs> um, that's a funny story I'm glad it ends right there Howie Long <laughs> Howie Long was there a football player named Howie Long uh, yeah I got the confused for Howie Long like Howie Long and this guy would not let up and he took me in to meet all his buddies and after a while I just said I'll be Howie Long <laughs> and he uh, go back in the bar I was in Corpus Christi, Texas we go back in the bar this guy's going hey everybody I got Howie Long here <laughs> and about six of his buddies just come up to me and they look, just look me in the face and they go you're not Howie Long <laughs> who's this asshole claiming he's Howie Long you know? I never said I was Howie you said I was Howie Long and then at this point he sees his buddies realize they're all turning and he says nah dude you said you were Howie Long and I fell for it I, went, I don't I never said I was Howie Long I'm a comedian I'm Rich Hall went, who? We know, well you're a comedian now oh, this guy just keeps making up more stories <laughs> I was ejected so you uh you uh now you know we've gotten you to the point where I guess Saturday Night Live comes into the picture, right? Yeah. Um, were you doing? Were you doing not? You kind of. Did I was doing not necessarily the news and uh, flying back to New York to do Saturday Night Live. And you did uh, three weeks ago. Saturday Night Live was three weeks on and one week off. So my week off, I'd come back here and film all my segments for not necessarily the news. Oh my god! I was bi-coastal. Jesus Christ! So you didn't sleep at all. At the time everyone else took to recoup, you would just come out. I don't know that anyone ever recouped on Saturday Night Live. It just seems to be, it was a very quick year. And the weird thing was that it was a great cast, but we all knew we were only there for a year. So... You replaced Michael McKeon, right? I think so, yeah. And then um, there was, uh, it was Billy Crystal, Martin Short, Christopher Guest. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Not Joe... uh, um, Harry Shearer, Jim Belushi, Larry David was a, a writer. staff writer. In fact, that's where that story comes from, right? Where he, he uh, the one from Seinfeld, where he, where George quits and then shows back up again on Monday morning. Where uh, didn't Larry David just? Walk I think he, yeah, he seemed to quit a lot, <laughs> <laughs> or threatening to. It was, must have been frustrating. He wasn't. Uh, so you uh, many things on the show. Uh, People didn't get him. You came over with a bunch of characters on Saturday Night Live. Uh, what was your fa- what was your favorite? I remember you did the David Byrne thing, but then you told me later that that was just something you didn't even expect to do on the show. I done it in rehearsal, and uh, it got cut. Well, they didn't have time for it, and they ran out of time. And uh, it was so I worked to this backing track that they made, and rehearsed it, you know, and, and then it got cut from the show. And generally, when something didn't make the show, it's dead. It's no matter what they say to you, it's not going to make the show next week. And it was like two weeks later, and they were about four minutes behind at the end of the show. They had four minutes to kill, and they said you have to go out and do the David Byrne thing. And I hadn't, re- I'd forgotten all about it. <laughs> I hadn't rehearsed it in like three weeks, and they, and literally, and within thirty seconds, they throw this giant suit on me and shove me out there, and the music starts up. <laughs> Fortunately, David Byrne always had this kind of 
frightened look on his face, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I had no trouble being in character. And his voice cracks. So it didn't matter how nervous I was, it just looked weirder. <laughs> More like David Byrne. So it was fine. I had no idea what I was doing. Some of, some of my favorite sketches that you were in, you were in the, uh, the, the, the guy who wandered into the White House. Yeah. That was based on a guy named Robert Latta, yeah. who at the time just wandered into the White House. And so, no one even noticed. Rich's character would just kind of wander into other places. Like one time they're on a uh, weekend update and they open up a new pack of baseball cards and they're all like regular baseball cards except you see Robert Latta, Rich's character in the background, <laughs> like doing a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> And then, like, he'd be, he would just kind of just poke his head in during a sketch and be like, <laughs> he'd kind of be walking around. I thought that was such a great running gag on the show. Also, um, you're on the one of the best of Eddie Murphy DVDs doing the... Um, I played Doug Flutie. Yeah, they played Doug Flutie. It's a very famous sketch for it. So I heard somebody just talking about it recently. Um, where uh, he, was, he was Desmond Tutu. He won the Nobel. It was... I don't know, legends. It was some yeah. supposed to be a talk show where people just won awards. <laughs> and it was like the Heisman Trophy and the Nobel Prize. I think it might have been a third person in there who won a, a writing, the Faulkner Award or something. Anyway, Eddie Murphy is playing Bishop Tutu and I'm playing Doug Flutie. And we're showing our awards and then kind of passing them around, you know, to, for each to look at the other award. And I like... Uh, I break the I break the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> no, no, no. Bishop no. or was no, it the other way around? No, no, he broke your he broke the Heisman Trophy. Oh yeah, he broke the Heisman Trophy. And and so they do the distraction of like, oh, let's show you th- throwing that famous uh, touchdown pass again. And so they show it again. They kept showing it over and over again. And they cut back, and Eddie and he's still he's, at one point he's tied his his the ribbon from the the to hold it up and then at one point he's got a welder set and he's like welding in the background and you're like look it was a lucky throw I didn't even have my eyes my eyes were closed and at some point you're just getting all upset oh yeah it's just going on and on why do you keep it was a throw what's where's my trophy what happened to it um that was good and I really enjoyed the stuff the video stuff you did now I know you did something with Bob Euchre which I don't ever remember seeing but you told me about oh Bob Euchre yeah you took just... him around for a day or something like that Oh, we put uh, softballs into a orange juice maker or something. But didn't you, like, go around with him? Like, that was one of your videos for Saturday Night Live? Yeah, yeah. And then, um, I don't remember that one, but I certainly remember the one where you are uh, the guy working at the grocery store. Yeah. And Jim Belushi's on your ass about, he's your boss. Yeah. And do you know this? Have you ever seen this? No. Uh, um, all right, let me explain it. Um, he, uh... He's like, oh, you gotta clean up the, you gotta clean up the, uh, the grocery store, blah blah blah. Okay, make sure this place, this floor better be polished and whatever. And so Rich cleaning, and then there's a pad, you know, those pads you you step on and the door opens. Well, he moves the pad to clean the floor, and some guy just smashes right into the like the door. And so he kind of looks down, and he's like, oh. And then the the pad is kind of offset, and he steps on it, and the door opens. So the next shot is two cut out footprints in the pad. And they're on his shoes, and he's walking around, and he's like, everywhere he goes, he's walking up the aisle, and all the like the dairy section, and all the windows, all the everything's opening up, all the doors are opening up. Everywhere he walked, like he walked by a mailbox, the mailbox opens up, past the car, the trunk, hood, doors all open up, casket, and, and uh, casket opened up at one casket time. opened up, <laughs> and, you know, and then the, the end of it, you know, the end of um, this this uh, bit is he brings it up to uh, he he walks. 
he walks up a, a hallway, knocks on the door, and r- walks away. Jim Belushi sticks his head out, looking around, looking around, looks down, sees this box, this gift wrap box, goes inside his apartment. Next shot you see is two shoes. It's Jim Belushi walking out of his apartment. He walks over to the elevator <laughs> and falls to his death. Um, but that got you, that was your first directing gig ever, right? I believe so, yeah. Got you to the DGA. When it, well, the idea was that year that there was going to be lots and lots of films because they just made Spinal Tap. Chris Guest and Harry Shearer just made Spinal Tap. So they were told, we got this huge budget. You can make all the short films you want. And the beginning of the season was just loaded with films. Everybody got to go out and make films. And that lasted about a month before the Oh, uh, we don't have any more money. Everything's got to be live now. And there were very few films for the remainder of the year. That sucks. So, it, it, but that, um, that that particular thing did that is that what got you into? Hey, maybe I could write and direct my own thing, or like you know, did you start thinking that way? Like um, that little piece that you did, like because I know I don't you you don't necessarily direct uh, on the the projects we worked with um, for the BBC, but you certainly are involved in the creative process a lot more than you might be say on Saturday Night Live, where you've got a lot of other people chiming in and helping. Yeah. Like is is that where you started thinking like okay I'm you know I'm moving in another direction because I know that you had your no not at all I I directed it because no one else would oh really yeah I wasn't remotely interested in directing did you direct the pieces for your stand up special on Showtime no Michael McKean directed those did he really yeah oh wow and uh, a guy named Steve Rash also directed some nah I don't really like directing so you move you move from Sarah Live you start doing um. The, you did this stand-up special. Where, where did you go from there? Did you, is that when you hit England? Is that when you started to... No, I, I kind of went back to playing, you know, to doing stand-up, which is what I was missing in the first place. When did Fridays come out? You, you were Fridays was before Saturday Night Live. Before? Fridays was before, not necessarily the news, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, do you know Fridays at all? Yeah, I've, I've seen... You know, like, like the Andy Kaufman stuff? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, so you become known as a sketch guy now. Wow, you're on Fridays, not necessarily the news, and Saturday Night Live. That's like the the three top sketch shows without, except for SETV at the time. Um, is this something that you're feeling good about? Do you want to like, like where do you where do you start to start doing your own? Because I know you you are comfortable doing a lot of your own projects. You write plays. You write um, these BBC specials. You do. Uh, you know, obviously some stand-up stuff, and then you do character pieces, like the Otis Lee Crenshaw stuff. Mm-hmm. At what point, like, what what do you love doing? What is your favorite? I like doing a live performing more than anything. And that's kind of what I want. I thought, well, I don't want to go out and make some bad films, you know. You I, actually, I did. You offer to film? Actually, you- I did go out and make a bad film, oh. now that I think about it. Right after Saturday Night Live, uh, I went out and made a film called Million Dollar Mystery. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. And that kind of soured me on the I could kind of see the future and the future was making a lot of bad comedies do you know about that million dollar mystery no I don't did it bankrupt I think it bankrupted uh, Durant 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 he's uh, what is it called Durantis Durantis Studios basically what happened was they had this promotional deal where like oh okay uh, everyone goes to watch this movie and we're going to give clues as to where this million dollars is and uh, nobody really came to the movie, and they wound up losing the million dollars cost them. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> uh, uh, I went to the premiere down um, Hollywood Boulevard, and before we go in, there's like a you know a, 
I don't know, CNN crew or some showbiz crew there going, are you excited? Are you expecting a big? Do you think you're going to get him? Do you think you? Where's the million dollars hidden? Do you do you know where it is? Uh, this is going to be a blockbuster, and uh, we came out <laughs> in the theater, and in the theater there's like nine people. <laughs> so we all come walking out, and there's a, a crew there waiting, and it was just like nine people who looked like they just been caught walking out of a porn theater <laughs> like they were covering their faces and they're like I, I don't want to talk about nah just get that camera away from me and then they're looking through the doorway to see more people are coming that was it that was it there was like nine people there that's when I started getting an inkling that this it wasn't going to happen and then you did Chud 2 I think yes I did but that was like one day of shooting I know uh, I was give you shit about that um, I, wanted to, I just didn't one crazy summer was I like rolling one crazy yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah, but and weren't you supposed to be in like a serious film, and then you got in a horse accident? Yeah, I was supposed to be in a film called Green Card. I haven't had a lot of. Uh, I seem to curse films that I've been. They're okay. either almost every film I've done has been uh, either a financial disaster or just a disaster of some other kind we're still waiting for Hippie Hippie Shake to come out Hippie Hippie Shake never came out I made a film with uh, Harvey Keitel and Michael Madsen yeah, I I, what could go wrong there <laughs> with a you know an able <laughs> a mentally stable cast <laughs> like that and that ran out that just suspended halfway through and then last year uh, I finally hit pay dirt as an animated voice yeah, I realized that my future is yeah, I realize my future is in not being seen. On <laughs> do you um, do you, tell tell the story about when you met Harvey Keitel? They're they're going around introducing everybody for the. Uh, oh yeah, we had to sit around the table and introduce ourselves, and um, he he, you know, everyone is kind of like they're cool around all the other actors, but Harvey Keitel is like, oh God, Rich, you're a comedian, you can you can make him laugh, cheer him up. He's a bit. Turns out he was getting paid in bags of cash per day. <laughs> anyway, so there was always this fear he was going to leave, you know, and not come back and finish the film. And uh, so he said, you can humor him, cheer him up, get a laugh out of him. And uh, so we're introducing ourselves, and I just, we were all having dinner the first night of shooting. And I said, uh, Harvey, my name's Rich Hall, and, uh, you know, look forward to working on this. And I just want you to know... Uh, Godfather is one of my favorite films, and he says I wasn't in The Godfather, and I went, I know. I'm <laughs> telling you, Godfather is one of my favorite films. Ah, uh, this Meshugana. Then he called me a Meshugana. And then I guess like uh, he there was a there was a story because Crispin Glover was also in the movie. Yeah, there's a story where Harvey Cartel left the set, and he's like, I'm not doing any more. No, forget it. I'm not doing any more sh- scenes. You know, screw it. I'm done. I'm not. I've done enough. And then they needed to do some retakes, and then I guess Christmas Glover said, "Tell Harvey that they're going to write in that his character had a bucket on his head, and they're going to." Oh, Christmas and I came up with this idea that because we had this scene, we're supposed to kill him, not kill him, but but uh, rough him up in a mo- in a hotel room, and uh, we hadn't shot it, and it seemed crucial to the movie, and uh, we came up with this idea where he comes, somebody looking like him, we get a stunt double. And then I put a metal basket over his head, a metal waste basket over his head, and then we beat him up. So then you never, you never have to see that it's Harvey. 
and uh, we told the producer, and we told the director, and the director said, uh, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and I said, I know, it's, but if you just tell Harvey we're going to do that, he will come back and do the scene. So just tell him we're going to do that. And then the next day the film shut down anyway. Oh, I thought he showed up. I thought he came back. We No, no, that was, that was the last day of shooting. Oh, wow. Um, that, what was that? that? Red Light Runners? Yeah, it was that's, called Red Light Runners. That's, that's not out either. Never came out. Um, so uh, now you're doing stuff for the BBC. You're doing, uh, you basically become the guy, the ambassador of all things American to, to uh, the, the Brits. You live out there now. You have a place in London. You've been out there for years, and uh, breaking into the comedy scene there was that tough. I mean, how? What? No, not at all. I really, after starting alive, I really just wanted, you know, a few forays here and there, and uh, but I just wanted to go back to doing Letterman and, and doing stand up. And because of Saturday Night Live, I was getting to play bigger theaters and stuff. So it was it was pretty good for a while, um, but. Uh, I went over to the Edinburgh Festival, and there was just something about it that appealed to me. For one thing, is I didn't have to, I wasn't under any pressure to do anything, I'd repeat anything from Saturday Night Live or Sniglets or anything else that was going on. Uh, and I was kind of, still kind of a prop comedian, I guess, to a certain degree. And then I went over there and just decided I'm not going to use any props anymore. I'm going to kind of restart just doing stand-up, pure stand-up, you know, without props. And uh, I kind of like the scene over there. Yeah, I... kind of um, grew on me. Yeah, I went to go see you at Edinburgh one year. Uh, I was working on one of your shows, and uh, um, I remember I had a tough time doing a show out there. This is but this is a funny story about you. Um, and I, I remember I had invited this girl to come see me, Sally Phillips. She's in the movie uh, Bridget Jones' Diary. I was all excited. She's going to come see my show. And I'm... You know, I go over to do my show, and I just fucking eat it. It was just the worst experience I've ever had. You know, I, I, I this this the story is much longer, but the end result is I'm back home, cowering under it, like just I'm um, shaking. Rich Hawkins walking in. What happened? What happened? What's going on? What happened? And, oh, it's awful. I don't. This is just horrible. Oh my god, I'm just this, like my life couldn't get any worse. And at the time, we were staying at a place three <laughs> three floors up. There were three stories up and right across the street from the castle. I'm like, my life couldn't get any worse. Rich takes my luggage and tosses it out the window. <laughs> and all my clothes go raining down outside. And I turn around and I'm like, what the fuck? He goes, huh? Your life got a little worse now, didn't it? Huh? See, your life could get worse at all times. And this is a lesson I'm teaching you. Like, I'm going to toss this sniggly motherfucker out the window. <laughs> He's going out the fucking window. And, uh, but yeah, you're always around to kind of bust my balls, keep me in shape. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, for those of you who don't know John, he's 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 just someone who there's just something about him that invites invites <laughs> practical jokes he's he you gets were, way worked up about something and you need to you need to diffuse him by throwing his stuff out the window I, I, I'm known for wearing a Cubs hat a lot I wear a, a Chicago Cubs hat and we were doing another, it was, I was in Edinburgh another time and I was looking for my Cubs hat I couldn't find it where is it where is it and I walk outside <laughs> And Richard put it on a homeless man. <laughs> this crazy, the crazy looking whack job homeless guy with all his hair all over. And he's got my cuffs hat on. And I'm looking at him like, oh, 
fuck, I gotta get it from this guy. And not only because you know he probably was just giving it to him, like here you go, buddy. Here's your kind of. That's how Rich presented it. Here you go. Here you brand new hat. Here you go. You look like you're down on your luck. Uh, <laughs> like, and I have to go and take it away from this crazy motherfucker. Uh, another time we were driving. Uh, this is back when everyone had CDs, and uh, and we stop at a truck stop, and Rich is just making fun of all my, you know. All my up and up until this point, he's just making fun of all my uh, CD selections and all the stuff I own as far as music. And uh, I go out to pump uh, gas, and I get to a uh, first of all, Rich goes, "I'm gonna pay for gas. You pay for the last. I'll pay for this." Uh, I go, I pump a dollar, and it stops. <laughs> and I walk in, and the lady goes, "Go ahead and finish." He just said to have you stop at a dollar and wait for you to come in all upset, and then just go ahead and pay for the whole thing. I'm like, you motherfucker. So then I go, and we start driving down the we start driving down the the um, street, and uh, he pulls out some I don't know CD that I had, and he's just looking like ah, this Springsteen, sh- this Springsteen, Springsteen or Robbie Folks or something, and, and you just toss it out the window, just, <laughs> and I'm like what? And I go from driving like 65 to zero. Cars fishtailing all over the place. I get out of the car. I'm like oh, this is. <laughs> I go and I I walk the like. Hundred or maybe about like seventy yards to go pick up this CD. I pick it up and I'm just walking back. I'm like, "This is it. This is that moment. I'm gonna fucking kill him. I'm gonna fucking kill him. This is it." And I open the door. He goes, "Look at it. Look at it. Look at it." And I look, and he had bought the For the Boys soundtrack <laughs> at, the, at the truck stop and slid it into my Springsteen. <laughs> Fucker. Uh, um. So you never actually gave a prop comedy in that case. Because uh, you threw the CD out the window for the last. Oh yeah, yeah. That wasn't really comedy though. <laughs> Getting John worked up is, it's, you know, it's not. You're just laughing like crazy, but it's not comedy because he gets really mental. <laughs> it's how far can I push John before he snaps? So um, uh, we're at we're we're at our hour. But uh, thank before, God! Shut up! Scratch <laughs> the surface. We got to have you back on sometimes. So there's so much more I want to talk about. But um, here's the. Uh, by the way, I really appreciate you taking this seriously because I really thought you were going to come on here and be like, right? like I've done a lot of morning radio with you, and you just fucking hate it. And yeah. almost always, I wind up ending the show without you because the you, you, the, the hosts are like, what, what, what? And you just walk right out. You just. You just you don't even say anything. You just put the mic, you just put your headphones down and leave the studio and they're just left going, What what the fuck just happened? Where did our where did Rich Hall go? And I'm like, eh, he just he, he does this, he hates this. Um But before, please, I I need you to tell me the story um uh about when you flew into um to play what was the university? I was uh hired to play Auburn University in Alabama. And uh, uh, the Sniglets books were um, pretty popular then. I know some of you listeners going, wait a minute, Alabama books. Hold it, hold it, wait a minute, hold it. Which is exactly what I was thinking, I suppose. I get to Alabama and I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, I know these people. I grew up in the South, so I know what I'm getting into. But at least I'm playing a university. So I think, well, it could be good crowd you know uh, I had to fly into Columbus Georgia that is the nearest airport to Auburn Alabama is Columbus Georgia and I walked out of the airport and I got in a cab and I told the guy I needed to go to Auburn University and he went alright and he drove for about 
15 minutes and pulled up in front of the bus station. And uh, he says, here you go. <laughs> I said, no, uh, I, I don't want to take a bus to Auburn. I wanted you to drive me to Auburn. And he said, I, I've, I've had a couple of DUIs. I'm not allowed in the state of Alabama. <laughs> if you go in there, there'll be a dispatcher in there. And she can get you a cab. This is where all the cabs in Columbus park. So go in there. There were no cabs. And I'm starting to worry about getting out on time. And I went in and went up to the taxi dispatcher in the bus station. And I said, I need a, I need a cab to take me to Auburn, which is about, I don't know, it seemed like 80, 90 miles away. And uh, she said, all right. And uh, I'll call one. And I go over and sit down and get back up about 10 minutes later and come back to the dispatcher and say, is a cab here? And she says, he should be here in a minute. And then I go back and sit down. And people come into the bus station, just weird-looking people, you know, weird Columbus Georgians. And there was this guy just staring at me, sitting in the bus seat across from me, just staring at me, you know. And I'm thinking, oh, God, i got to get out of here before this guy snaps and I went back and said can you please call the cab again I'm worried about getting to uh, Auburn and she says oh there's your cab driver there's a guy sitting across from me he came over and sat down and just stared at me for a long time and then I went back over to him and said uh, you're the cab driver he went yep and I said okay well let's get going and he says nothing he just I follow him out to the cab and this is a long long drive this is like 40-50 miles of me sitting in the back seat and uh, staring at it <laughs> farmland and red dirt and rural Alabama you know and I don't want to talk to him anyway but uh, then all of a sudden he just says so what y'all going up there to Auburn for and uh, I had nothing better to do except just make up a story and I've been reading this article on the, on the flight down at this mag airline magazine about this place called Redstone Arsenal up in northern Alabama where they do all this um Near Huntsville, they do all like a, it's a kind of a mini NASA kind of Huntsville area. Uh, they do a lot of space exploration, engineering, and stuff up there. Well, anyway, I said, well, um, I work at Redstone Arsenal, and uh, we were working on a uh, we were working on a experimental rocket that's gone out of control and uh, it's gone off course, and it's headed for Auburn. So I need to get up there. To the uh, relay station and reset some coordinates so that we can send it off into the Atlantic Ocean where no one will get hurt. <laughs> just, I'm saying all this and just thinking, this really sounds convincing. I'm just saying it <laughs> to see if I can sound like an engineer for no other reason than. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we reset the coordinates. So the sooner we can get there, the better. And he went, oh, oh, damn. I thought all you did was him sniglets. <laughs> and, uh, I love that story. I just thought, what the? Ah, oh, jeez. I, do I back off of the story now? I thought it was a pretty good story. Is he buying it? Maybe. I said, well, yeah. Yeah, when I'm not busy working on uh, experimental rocketry, I, I, yeah, I just do that as a hobby, those books. Uh... And uh, I might pop into Auburn University and do a do a show while I'm there. It's <laughs> just like you could just show up and do a show uh, for students. And, he, and I said, uh, and then I and then I, and then a few minutes later, I just said, uh, 
I started thinking, oh, I want to get back to Columbus. I don't want to stay in Auburn. So, so I said, look, if you want to stick around, uh, I'm going to do a, a comedy show while I'm there. <laughs> and uh, I'd forgotten. I didn't even know what I was going to, you know. I never said anything more about the Rockets. Like maybe. <laughs> I just said, if you want to stick around after the comedy show, uh, you could drive me back to Columbus. And he went, hell no, I'm getting out of there before that rocket explodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Rich, it's been a blast. There's so much more I want to talk to you about. You're going to be on a future show. Uh, you just did the set list last night, which we saw, which was killer. For those of you who don't know, it's a new show that's going to be on Sky TV, where comics go up. They have no idea what they're going to say. They're, they're given a list of topics. Um, uh, just they're, they're presented with them as they're on stage. And uh, Rich is one of the best at it. He's also one of the best comics ever been, and uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world, one of my best friends. And I'm tickled pink that you were able to do the show. Thank you so much, Aaron. We missed you. Uh, but... Uh, uh, you'll be you'll be around for the next one. He's our co-host. You don't 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 look at me like that, Rich. All right, he was a co-host. Well, he is a co-host. We're, we're, there's three of us. It's a it takes three people to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Rich, and uh, and we'll talk to everybody soon. Okay. Thank you, Rich. Bye bye.